You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, Attorney Dan Mayer and Licensed Counselor Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now, here are your hosts. Hi there and welcome back. Today, Dan and I are going to be talking with you about our ethical duty to practice within our scope of competence. So this is a great, I've been waiting for a while to give this anecdote uh, and I'm going to give it today. And it relates to me and my practice as an attorney, but but bear with me. I promise you, I will bring it back around to practitioners in the scope of competence. But as you can imagine, if you're listening, you probably have a parent, a sibling, a cousin, an aunt, an uncle who is an attorney. And you are probably listening to this and you probably have done this to them. Don't deny it. Um, said, hey, I have a quick legal question on um, X. You know, what do you think about this? Right. And don't lie, because I know it happened. And, and by the way, this is a running joke among attorneys. We, we, there, are, there are the memes up the wazoo about this. We get this all the time. But what I can say is that um, when someone asks me this often is I will say, well, you know, that's not really my area of expertise. And I really can't tell you an answer, but you do need to consult with an attorney if this is something that you're, you're dealing with, right? And I'm very careful with that, right? Sometimes the conversation will continue. The person's like, sure, no problem, you know, whatever. But I'll explain to them. You know, I'll say, listen, you know, if you had a specialized need, like, you know, a doctor, you need to have brain surgery, right? Or a brain scan done, right? You're not going to walk in your doctor's office, your primary care physician, like, hey, you can do the brain surgery, right? Doctor hopefully would say like, nope, that's not my area of specialty. And that'll do that. My brow practice is not covering me if I do that. Like I'm a, I can refer you to X person though, and they can help, right? All this is getting to the fact is that you have to know your area of specialty. You have to know your area of competence. And there are certain areas that if you're not competent, you shouldn't be doing. That's why we attorneys are careful with it. That's why there are different types of doctors. And you as a practitioner, you know, if you were specialized or trained in one area, you really don't want to be venturing into another area unless you receive training or you know some sort of have some sort of level of competence in that area. Yes, absolutely. And our professional code of ethics definitely has something to say about that. So I have some information for you from the NASW Code of Ethics and also the American Counseling Association Code of Ethics. If you're a, psych- if you're a psychologist, I'm sorry, I don't have yours, but. Um, If you're a social worker or a counselor, you can hear what those codes of ethics have to say. So the social work code of ethics says that social workers should provide services and represent themselves as competent only within the boundaries of their education, training, license, certification, consultation received, supervised experience, or other relevant professional experience. And the Code of Ethics for Counselors, the ACA says, it talks about boundaries of competence. Counselors practice only within the boundaries of their competence based on their education, training, supervised experience, state and national professional credentials, and appropriate professional experience. And they also say that that includes multicultural competency. So if we're just thinking about that definition, that gives us some information about the things that we need to be doing in order to build competence. If we um, are looking to build competence, you're looking to work with a new population, or you're working on doing a new treatment modality, that we want to be thinking about doing reading, doing training, getting supervision, getting consultation in order to provide that service. 
Um, if you are a new counselor, a lot of times I think new counselors like, but I don't feel like I know much of anything right now. I'm new to the field, but that's where internships come in. That's where your supervision comes in and being able to take advantage of training opportunities on the job experience. But if you are a new mental health practitioner, that also means as you're looking for employment opportunities, looking for opportunities where you're going to have the type of support, supervision, oversight, and the type of professional modeling that you need in order to build that competency. And also for more established practitioners who have been offering services for a while, if you are trying to offer a new service, work with a new population, that will mean getting consultation, training, or supervision, or formal education. So that way you can practice with competence. Um, And one of the things I was thinking about, Dan, when you were talking earlier is about how this can sometimes show up in group practice work and private practice work. If you are building your caseload for the first time in group practice or private practice, sometimes people try to cast a really wide net. I'll see anyone. I'll see children. I'll see people who are this age or I'll see people with this issue or that issue. I don't know what I'm doing necessarily, but I need clients and I need to build my caseload. And sometimes people end up saying yes to work with individuals that maybe they shouldn't be saying yes to um, unless they know that I'm truly interested and I'm going to do what I have to do on my end to get the training and support that I need. I, uh, I once had an attorney and he made a joke, but he was being serious. Um, and he was talking about this exact concept among attorneys, but I, I think it applies to practitioners, right? And he made the joke. He's like, when you cast too wide a net, you bring in trash, right? Now he's not referring to clients as trash, but what his point was, and he explained it, and I agree with him, is that what you're doing, focus on on what you know how to do, right? That's your safe zone, right? You go beyond that, you're going to bring in, you know, clients, you're going to bring in issues that you probably don't know how to deal with. Yeah. That aren't what you're looking to do. And suddenly you might be saddled with a client who has a really serious issue and you're saying they're like, I have no idea how to help this person, right? So one of the pieces of advice I would give to both new and you know, older practitioner or more experienced practitioners is, you know, if you're going to venture into a new area, right, there is no shame. And in fact, it is a wise decision to ask for help, to ask for guidance. There is a reason that in the legal world and in the mental health world for practitioners is encouraged that practitioners you know, confer with each other, that you're allowed to, medical professionals and healthcare professionals are allowed to confer because we don't want to deny that opportunity if it means that the patient or the, the client is going to get the best help. So if you're struggling with something and you're someone you know who's much more experienced than you doing this, you know, and they're willing to talk to you, don't be embarrassed. Oh, I don't, because you don't know what you're doing. That's exactly the person who can tell you or help maybe guide you so that you can do what you want to do better. Right, because this because the the consequences are serious if you mess this up and if something goes wrong, the consequences for your license could be serious. Yeah, and and I'm thinking about conversations that I have with people at our office. You know, one at our office, and this isn't everywhere, but we let our clinicians decide who they work with. What you know, what populations do they work with? What age ranges? Uh, what conditions do they treat? And this is for two reasons. One, we want to make sure that people are practicing within their scope of competence, right? That's our ethical duty. 
but also because I think that that's good for clinicians and I think that that's good for clients, right? If you are the mental health practitioner and you don't really like working with children, in fact, you don't know what to do with them, that would be me. Um, (laughs) You know, it's not really in that child's best interest for me to work with them. And I am going to be really stressed out. And so while some of you who really love working with children and you just love sitting on the floor and playing these new games and these really creative things that you're doing, I want to sit on the couch and like talk or do brain spotting or do something like that. And so one, it can be really stressful for you, the mental health practitioner, if you are trying to offer services that are outside of the scope of your training and area of expertise because you're and you're going to feel that stress your client is going to feel that stress and your client is going to see that insecurity show up in the room um, and our clients we need to be able to show them that we can help them with what they're dealing with and if they see that we are not confident in providing that service that's going to impact them and how they're feeling about the service but also if we're thinking about what is fair to the client clients are coming in because they really want help with a given issue. And by the time someone actually picks up the phone, schedules an appointment for counseling, it's usually a big deal. It's a hard step for a lot of people to take. And so we want to make sure that if someone does pick up the phone and says, hey, I need someone to help me. I think I might have OCD um, or something else. We want to make sure that they can work with a provider who really knows their stuff, who can say, yeah, absolutely. I've helped a lot of other people with that. And I have training in these areas and I can help you. And so just knowing that practicing within our scope of competence is beneficial for us and our own stress levels, um, our own ethics, but it's also important for our clients. Now, there's three, and there's three points I want to make here, um, separate points. The first to respond to what you were saying, Melissa, and we've mentioned this on this podcast before, to your point, you know, if you are under duress and under stress because you're struggling to deal with an area that you're not experienced with, you know, all the stress that Melissa was just talking about, your own mental self-care is critical, right? We've mentioned this before. You cannot provide adequate services, therapy services. You cannot be a, a help to your clients if you are yourself under extreme stress or, you know, because you're just so, you know, it's just a worried state because you don't know how to handle something, right? So you have to get that addressed. The second point, on the other end of the spectrum side of what Mills is talking about, you know, I've you know, seen or heard of, of cases of practitioners who are in one field or another where it is extremely mm-hmm. stressful just by the nature of what they're doing, like trauma therapy, to the point where they're getting burned out. And you know, they say, look, I want to leave this particular area. I want to go into another area. I'm just, I just, you know, because of my own mental health, I need to do something else. And that's fine. But this is another example, which is kind of a different spin of where if you're going to venture into another area for whatever reason, when you make that step, you want to make sure that as you kind of move away from this area that you used to be doing into something new, that you're accomplished, that you're ready to do it. Kind of a follow-up note to that, and this is my third point, is there's someone else that you also need to be informing if you're going to do something new. And that would be your liability insurance company. Because if they think that you're doing family therapy or working with kids, and meanwhile, you start working with severely traumatized population or someone who has increased risk for depression or suicidal thoughts, something goes wrong, you get sued, your liability company might turn to you and say, you know what? You didn't tell us you were working in that area. We would have, you know, 
you know, charge you a higher premium or change something around. Your coverage doesn't cover this type of practice. We're not going to cover that. Now, I'm not saying that will necessarily happen, but that's a risk, right? So when you really go into a drastically different field or a different area of providing therapy services, on that checklist needs to be also just letting your, your malpractice carrier know. The best thing they can say to you is, okay, no problem. Thanks for letting us know, right? But there's now documentation you've told them. So there's no surprises. Yeah. So that's a good point. And, and I'm thinking specifically something like outdoor therapy. That might yes. be something where they have an opinion on. On that note, if you're going to do things like outdoor therapy or something that does have its own set of risks, right? And with outdoor therapy, for example, the risks are external. They come something that's often outside of your control. Cars, sidewalks people trip on, weather, right? That has its own set of risks. And in that case, you also need to do a determination of, am I now engaging in an area of practice where the intake forms that I have may not be sufficient enough? Do you need to have a waiver? Do you need to add language or some sort of informed consent to cover what you're doing? You know, is there additional information you need to be given the client in light of the elements or risks or characteristics of that kind of therapy you want to do? Outdoor therapy is an example of that. Yeah. And I think that goes back to the topic of competence because mm-hmm. when we have the training, the education, we've been doing the reading on a particular mm-hmm. topic, then we yeah. are informed and we're like, oh yeah, obviously I need informed consent for that because I know because I've done the training and the right. reading and I've done all the stuff. Now, if that's not the case, then we might think that we can, you know, maybe do what we've always done. And maybe that's not the case. So that's part of where practicing within our scope of competence comes back. And and I'm going to use outdoor therapy again as an example, because, you know, if you decide you want to take on this new area of therapy, you try a new uh, procedure or a new method or whatever it is, outdoor therapy, I mean, like I said, I'm using an example, right? If you just unilaterally decide one day, I'm going to do outdoor therapy. So starting tomorrow, I'm going to do outdoor therapy with my clients. The question I have is, have you considered the confidentiality aspects? If you're sitting on a park bench giving someone therapy, have you considered the risks to the violations of that confidentiality if they know someone walks by or someone overhears what's being talked about, right? These are all things you have to deal with outdoor therapy. And likewise, similarly, with any area that you're now venturing into that's new, there are considerations you have to take into place and account for. Yeah. And I think also knowing that clients have the right to ask us about our background, our training, our experience. Mm-hmm. Um, just going back to that social work, the NASW Code of Ethics on competence, saying that social workers should represent themselves as competent only within the boundaries of their education and so on. Right. So even how we represent ourselves is really important, not saying that we do something if we don't actually have the training and experience to do. I'm thinking about couples counseling, since that's a topic that comes up a lot at our office when I'm referring people for couples counseling. And I'll talk with my clients about having conversations with providers to say, or to ask them about their training. What is your training in couples therapy? Knowing that there are different, some people, maybe they don't have the training, but they have their license. Um, And some people have training in the Gottman method or in PACT or some other modality, but letting clients know that they can ask questions about a provider's background, education, and training in a certain area. Yeah. And so, and again, this is one of those areas where if you don't know the answer or you're unsure, that's okay. But not knowing and just 
proceeding forward, that's how you're going to get into trouble. Yeah. So these are just some things to think about. Um, we'd love to know what are the things that you're interested in, in terms of your own specializations, but just make sure that you are doing the things that you have to do, education, training, supervision, consultation. Again, sometimes we might shy away from those things because they usually cost money, books, training, supervision, consultation. Again, it's more money that we're spending to better our skill set. but knowing that we really want to do those things in order to make sure that uh, we're protecting ourselves, our clients, and that we're doing really good clinical work. And as we always say, what is this example? It's dotting your I's and crossing your T's. That's what we're talking about. Yes. So um, with that note, um, I think we're going to wrap up. If you do have comments, questions, anecdotes about your own experiences, venturing into a new area, we'd love to hear about it. You can reach out to us on the Facebook, via the web, and uh, we would love to hear from you. Um, But that's about it for us. We're going to wish you a good day. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit protectingyourpractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.